Morning, church. Good to see everybody here. Great singing this morning. Love those Christmas hymns, Christmas carols. If you're a guest, my name's Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. We're glad you're here. We pray that our guests feel a, a deep sense of belonging uh, as you're in worship with us each week. And so we're glad you're here. Hope you feel quickly at home. We're in Isaiah chapter 9. The bumper video that we play there is just kind of a uh, a graphic illustration of um, the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. Turn with me there in your copy of the scripture. Before we get to chapter 9, though, you can, you can put your thumb in Isaiah 9. I want to tell a little story um, that's important, according to Isaiah, for us understanding the Christmas narrative. Do you know the story of Midian's defeat? Because it's referenced in Isaiah 9 is the reason I ask. Understanding this story helps us prepare for Christmas. Midian was located on the east side of the Gulf of Aqaba. Do we have that? Yeah, so it's down here. I've got my fancy laser pointer. Remember, we show maps, uh, not because I'm a geeky social studies teacher, which I was at one time, uh, but because these are real places, real people, real events, real history. So today we're talking about Midian. This is the northern end of the Red Sea. Cairo's over here. Jerusalem's up here. Right? This is the Dead Sea, or the end of the Dead Sea. The Jordan River is up there. And, um, so Midian, the neighbors of Israel, are invading. That's the impetus for the war. Midian would regularly invade the Promised Land and tear up the crops, steal the crops, steal uh, cattle, livestock. So bad was the oppression of the Midianites, as it's talked about in Judges chapter 7, that the Israelites, when the Midianites would show up, they'd go to live in caves. They would uh, flee their towns because their towns were going to be destroyed. They wanted to save their lives. They'd actually go live in caves. Of course, most folks know the story of Gideon, but when Israel cries out for relief, cries out to God for relief um, against the Midianites, God sends Gideon to care for them, and that's Judges chapter 6. And you probably have heard or referenced the famous Gideon's fleece as he asked God to prove to him that he's going to deliver Israel through Gideon's leadership. Lesser known, though, is the strange battle that was fought and the strange strategies that were fought employed by Gideon as he faced Midian, strategies that God told him that he was to employ. So, for example... God directed Gideon to reduce his fighting force. He had 32,000 men, but in Judges chapter 7, verse 2, you have too many men, God says to Gideon. You have too many men, I cannot deliver Midian into there, that's Israel's hands, or Israel would boast against me saying, our own strength has saved us. You've got too many men. Now, I'm guessing very few generals, uh, battle commanders, want to hear that. Most want more is better, more manpower, more soldiers as you're going into battle. But God actually directs Gideon to tell the Israelite troops assembled against Midian. He says, hey, if you're afraid, you're not up for this, you don't want to go into battle, you can go on home. 22,000 soldiers walked off the battlefield. God reduces Gideon's force by two-thirds. He had 32,000 soldiers. 
22,000 walk off the battlefield. I wonder how Gideon felt as he watched two-thirds of his fighting force leave. Insecure, perhaps, vulnerable, exposed, terrified. Interestingly enough, though, God isn't done. He's not finished thinning the fighting force. He says, you still have too many. 10,000 is too many. So he told Gideon to take the remaining men to a nearby watering hole and get them something to drink. So 10,000 men make their way to a local uh, water supply. And when they get to the watering hole, Gideon's given specific instructions to watch the soldiers and how they drink water. Again, strange, right? Strange to reduce your force. But now God is going to select men for Gideon based on how they drink the water. Here's the verse. Separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. That's strange, right? Here's an artist's rendering of the scene. So apparently there are two types of folks when you get to the watering hole, two types of soldiers. One type of soldier gets down on all four and he puts his head to the water. The other soldier scoops water in his hands and laps the water out of his hands like a dog laps water out of a bowl. I've heard preachers claim that God was looking for the shrewdest of soldiers, those who fight like dogs. But I think it could just as easily, you could just as easily make the case that God was looking for the dumbest soldiers so that he'd get the most glory. In other words, it's, it's unclear exactly why those were selected who picked water up and brought it to their face and lapped it like a dog rather than kneeling on all fours and putting their head down. That's unclear. What's clear, what's crystalline clear is that he wants the glory. He's reducing Gideon's fighting force so that he gets the glory. Folks, 9,700 men went on all fours and drank directly from the water. Only 300 men scooped the water up in their hands and lapped it like a dog. So I don't know why the difference, but God selects the 300. He said, these are your guys. Send the other 9,700 home. This means God reduced Gideon's fighting force by 99%. If tomorrow morning you woke up and 99% of your bank account were gone, yeah, the giggles help me. They tell me that we're tracking. If you woke up tomorrow morning and 99% of your friends were not available to you, or 99% of your physical well-being was removed, or your mental ability, would God be enough? Would you trust? Would you turn to him? I wonder if Gideon felt foolish sending home 9,700 men that, that wanted to fight. These guys were actually interested in fighting. Remember, the 22,000 that had already departed, they admitted... We're afraid we're not, in, we're not up for this. But these 9,700, they want to fight. I wonder if he felt foolish saying, no, we're going to go a different route. With thousands of Midians to be faced down. Ever feel foolish for believing that God was born in Bethlehem? 
that God came in the flesh? I wonder if Gideon felt pressure from the 9,700 men to include them in the battle. Again, they wanted to fight. Ever feel pressure from those around you? Feel pressure to waffle on your faith that God was born in Bethlehem? I wonder if Gideon felt uniquely exposed and vulnerable. Vulnerable to defeat, slaughter, I mean, let's put it frankly. Only 300 with which to fight. Ever feel exposed, vulnerable, foolish, pressure to waffle on your beliefs about whether God was born in Bethlehem? I like to call this the Christmas dilemma or the Christmas question. It's, it's a question that we regularly face and that everybody must face it, this Christmas dilemma. Picturing baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes, asleep in the hay. Is this God? Lying in a manger. It can make it awfully hard to believe he's also mighty God. This tension between the image of a newborn asleep in the hay and wrapped in swaddling clothes, and at the same time claiming to be almighty God, is this dilemma, this tension, this question. How could a baby so delicate and fragile be the creator and ruler of the universe? Yet that's exactly what Isaiah, 700 years before he's born, says about him. He's mighty God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. This is Almighty God, this child that's going to be born, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah proclaims that this little baby is Almighty God. So it seems to me that the real danger of the Christmas season isn't the busyness of parties or the travel to visit family or the consumerism that often underlies or fuels our gift giving. I think the real danger of the Christmas season is the doubt that tempts us to question whether this little baby born in Bethlehem is the all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere-present God of the universe. After all, one of the most striking qualities of a baby, an infant, is that they're completely dependent upon others to care for them, unable to care for themselves in the least. And so we're tempted to chalk the Christmas story up to what some refer to as redemptive myth. Just this week, I spoke to somebody, self-describing as a Christian, who says that this is redemptive myth. The gospel story of Christ born in Bethlehem to a virgin redemptive myth. Now, what this person meant by that is that it's not factually true, historically accurate, but that it's mythical, that it's fable, it's fiction about how God is working overall, generally, generically. In other words, God's entering time and space to care for us, but there was no baby, according to redemptive myth, that was birthed in history to a virgin. And I'll admit it can be hard to believe that God was born to a virgin in a small, insignificant nation, in a tiny town to a carpenter and his wife, delivered in a stable, spent his first night, couple nights, in a manger, a feed trough. I'll admit that God's entry into the world is strange, surprising. It creates a tension for us. It forces us to ask and answer the question, 
is this God? Is he able? It's not a new question. It's an age-old question, one that God's people have been wrestling with since the beginning of time. It's, one, it's the one that Gideon had to ask and answer. Is God mighty enough to deliver with 300? Is God mighty enough to, to be the architect of such a strange plan and carry it out and defend his people and care for his people Israel? Gideon had to ask an answer. Will I trust in this strange plan? At God's direction, in the middle of the night, Gideon calls his 300 men together and deploys them. Middle of the night, they sneak up, they surround the Midianite camp. And the battle plan, it doesn't involve swords, as you might expect with soldiers. It involves trumpets and these jars with lights in them. Picture an ancient Molotov cocktail or something. And at Gideon's command, they're to blow the trumpets. They blow the trumpets. These 300 men blow the trumpets and throw the jars. Strange. Judges chapter 7, verse 22. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the Midianite camp to turn on each other with their swords. The Lord caused it. Frankly, after first service, somebody who knows a lot more about the Bible than I do, came up to me afterwards, and he said, you know, there was no real battle plan per se. They didn't even, they weren't planning on utilizing swords. There was a trumpet plan, a band, right? And, And throwing these jars. So they didn't even go into it thinking that they were going to deliver themselves but that God's going to act in this strange way on their behalf. Who caused the victory? The Lord caused the victory. God defeated Midian with only 300 soldiers armed with trumpets and smashing jars. Don't let the strangeness of a baby born in Bethlehem distract you. Don't let the strangeness of an army being defeated with trumpets and smashing jars. Don't let it distract you. Let it amaze you. Let it amaze you. Let it encourage you, as God did for Israel, what they couldn't do for themselves. They hadn't been able to defeat Midian. They had been oppressed by Midian for generations. This reality, God doing for his people what they're unable to do for themselves in strange ways, albeit, is repeated time and time again throughout Scripture. When Moses passes the torch to Joshua and they go into the land, there in the book of Joshua we read, one of you routs a thousand. How could that be? How could one soldier defeat a thousand? Because the Lord, your God, fights for you, just as he promised into Zerubbabel, who was one of the leaders who rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem as the exiles returned from deportation. He's told, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord Almighty, Zechariah 4.6. That'll come up again here in a minute. Not by human might, not by human power, this temple's going to get rebuilt by the power of the Spirit. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord Almighty, is going to do this. 
Do we believe that it's our might and power that woke us this morning? That gives us breath? That gives us talent to go to work and earn, pay our bills? Do we believe it's us that's doing this, that's sustaining the globe? Not by might, not by human power, but by the Spirit of the Lord it happens. Isaiah is really clear in chapter 9, before he gets to a proclamation of the four names of this little baby that's going to be born, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, before he gets there, he, he tells us what it's going to be like and how we can conceptualize of this day, and he compares it to the defeat of Midian's forces. If you've got your copy of scripture open, Isaiah 9 verse 4. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, this day, this birth of this child is going to be like that day. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you, God, have shattered the yoke that burdens them. He did that for uh, Gideon and Israel. When he defeated Midian, he shattered the yoke that burdened them. That was the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, this foreign force that it continually invaded their country. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there be no end. That's the outcome of God's fighting on our behalf. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Not by might, not by power of human strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Here again, that was Zechariah 4, 6. Isaiah 9, 7, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, it's not often that we're encouraged to think of warfare in preparation for Christmas. I understand that. But, but that's a part of how Isaiah wants us to prepare for the birth of this child. Advent it means a preparation for the coming of Christ. It's the season leading up to Christmas in which we get ready, ready to celebrate his arrival. That's what Advent means, arrival. In Isaiah, as he foretells of the, of the baby to be born, he says it's going to be like in the day of Midian's defeat. It's that day back when. It's like that day you shattered the yoke of their burdens, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. He's going to do that again through this little baby born in Bethlehem. Much like the means of defeat were strange for Gideon, the means of defeat are strange for us as well. Blowing trumpets, throwing jars with candles in them, strange. Whittling down a fighting force by 99%, strange. A baby. A baby. Advent is oftentimes a, a season of quiet reflection on angels appearing to shepherds and of wise men following a new star. But make no mistake, these types of gentle realities are made possible 
because of God's might. Working through strange battle plans. To make sure we understand this reality, Isaiah says the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish that. We might blow right by that name, the Lord Almighty, believing it's simply a superlative, the Lord really great. That's not what it is. Or it's not simply what it is. It's not simply adjectival. The transliteration of the Hebrew phrase, Yahweh Sabaoth, means Lord of hosts, Lord of armies. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. That's one way. It's an important way to prepare for Christmas is to realize how our peace comes to us, how justice comes to us, how righteousness comes to us. It comes because of God's zeal, his passion working through his heavenly host. God leads an army of angels, often referred to as the heavenly host, as well as calling upon his people, people like David, people like Gideon, people like us, to fight on his behalf. Do we picture God making war? We certainly want to picture God as he really is, not simply how we prefer to think of him, And surprisingly, in the Christmas story, God's warring character and purposes figure prominently. As in the day of Midian, Christ will be born. The zeal of the Lord Almighty, Yahweh Sabaoth, the the zeal of the Lord of Heaven's armies is going to accomplish this. Now, an obvious question is, upon whom does God make war? That's a fair question. And the short answer is that God makes war on those that oppose him, his purposes, his rule, his reign, against those who will not submit to him. And of course, some will contend that this this is only an Old Testament reality, claiming that God of the Old Testament is wrath-filled and vengeful, while the God of the New Testament is loving and gracious. Yet in the little New Testament book of James... This name comes up again, Yahweh Sabaoth. And I forgot, I just realized I skipped David and Goliath. The first time we heard of Yahweh Sabaoth, David says it on the battlefield to Goliath. I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty. There it is. The God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. That's the first time we hear about it, right? But James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes in James chapter 5 about the coming judgment against those who steal from the oppressed. The Lord of righteousness and the Lord of peace, both. Yahweh Sabaoth. James writes, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. It's not just an Old Testament concept. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He's one and the same. He's always abounding in loving kindness and mercy. But he's also the God who judges us and fights for justice. What are we to do? How do we best prepare to celebrate 
God born in Bethlehem? How do we relate to Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord Almighty, one who marshals heaven's armies against those who oppose him? Most simply put, we confess our sins and submit to him. Each Sunday morning we pray um, before service services. Love to have you there. 745 to 815, it's a Zoom prayer meeting. This morning I read Psalm 2 in the prayer meeting. Strange psalm to, to read in the season of preparation for Advent. But in Psalm 2, second psalm, the psalmist writes, Kiss the sun, kiss like smooch, right? Kiss the sun, S-O-N, which is to, it's a, it's a, a posture of homage or submission. Kiss the sun or he'll be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. This is a thousand years before Christ was born. This psalm was written. Kiss the son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to destruction, to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. One of the best ways to prepare for Christmas is to understand this little baby is Almighty God, creator of the universe, by whom and forth whom all things have been made. Me, you, us. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you bring destruction on yourself. Submit to the sun. That's the best response. We'll either submit to him, or he'll fight against us. It's true that God makes war on all those who live in rebellion against him, but here's the good news. He also shows mercy towards all those who submit to him. That's why Christ came, so that we might escape the wrath of God. Paul writes as much. It's on the screen. Since we have now been justified by his blood, the baby born in Bethlehem was born to grow up and die outside Jerusalem so that his blood would be spilled. We've been justified by that blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? Through him, this little baby born. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, kiss the son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Jesus' victory over the grave. If you're trusting in Jesus as Savior, you have been saved from the wrath to come. If you want to be saved from the wrath to come, trust in Jesus as Savior. The reason Christ came, incarnate, in the flesh, born in Bethlehem, was so that we'd not have to experience the wrath of God against our sin, but that he would bear it on the cross for us, taking our place. Submit to him. Receive what God has done for you that you've been unable and will be unable to do for yourself. That is to atone for your sin. You can do it right where, if you've not started your trust or expressed your trust in Christ, you can do it right where you are. Just say, thank you for sending Christ. Begin to follow after him, submitting to him in your, in your life. If you're already following Jesus, let the reminder of Midian's defeat inspire your faithfulness this Christmas season. As it was in the day of Midian's defeat. That is, 
It was strange then, and it's still strange to live by faith depending upon God's provision rather than depending upon yourself. It's true that God has done for us through Christ's birth and death what we could not do for ourselves. He has defeated human sin. He has defeated Satan. He's overcome death. We praise God for this. But don't miss the obvious. Gideon and 300 men went to battle with trumpets in jars. In other words, yes, God does for us what we can't do for ourselves, but he also calls us to follow him in obedience. In these strange practices, those 300 men were called to actively engage in battle, and that has not changed The people of God are still involved. We're called to make disciples. We're we're called to live obediently. We're called to carry our cross. Follow me closely here. We don't initiate our salvation. We don't cause our salvation. We don't secure our salvation. God saves us. We don't save ourselves. But we are actively involved in God's saving work in our lives through obedience to his commands. Just as a baby participates in the birthing process but doesn't cause it, it wasn't the baby's idea, but the baby's intricately involved. Jesus, our Savior, said, you must be born again. I'm going to bring you to new life, is his point, and you're going to be involved in it actively through obedience to me. Whatever battle you're facing today, Dependence upon God for the victory requires an active posture of engagement through obedience. How easy might it have been for Gideon to say, oh, this is crazy, I'm not doing this. I'm not taking 300 trumpeteers up against thousands of Midianite warriors. I know enough about life in DuPage County that many of us wrestle with the strange ways of God. We balk at obedience, saying, oh, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way than sexual purity. There's got to be a, way, a better way than fidelity. Chastity, if you're not married. There's got to be a, way, a better way than generosity. It feels so strange to give my money away to the mission of God. Whatever battle you're facing, remember, as it was in the day of Midian's defeat, it's the same when this little baby's born. We're called to follow God's strange plans. The problem with obedience is it often feels foolish. Imagine how Gideon felt watching 9,700 men eager to fight walk away, sending them home. Do you think he questioned God's wisdom? How often do we hesitate to embrace the activities that are strange to us? I think of gathering weekly for worship. Well done, you're here. But I can't think of another gathering like this culturally where people sing to one another, another strange activity. We're told to do it. God sings. We're to sing. Confessing our sins to one another. When was the last time you embraced that strange activity? James chapter 5 says it's actually a part of experiencing healing, praying for one another, fasting, 
loving our enemies. On the fasting topic, we'll start January, January 11th through the end of the month, 21 days of prayer and fasting. Giving sacrificially, serving one another, carrying each other's burdens, forgiving those who sin against you, strange. If we're depending on ourselves, these activities will seem utterly foolish. But if we're depending on the baby that was born in Bethlehem, Almighty God, these activities, these types of activities will produce the power of God in our lives in victory. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us as a people. As it was in the days of Midian, it's still much like that today. We're called to follow you. Help us follow. Help us follow your son. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Help us be commandment keepers, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.